I know you've got a great idea, and I know you would like to turn that idea into a reality, and I know you can do it with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com slash so smart for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code so smart to save 10% off of your first purchase of a website or a domain. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 137. What is the meaning of soup? What? I don't know. What's all the weird questions? What is the meaning of spoon? <laughs> this is my favorite episode of Adventure Time. It's an animated series on the Cartoon Network, and it features Jake the dog and Finn the human, and together they go on adventures. And many times those adventures explore ideas and emotions and life situations that would be really difficult for other fictional shows to tackle, because in Adventure Time, just about anything can happen. Adventure Time! For instance, in this episode, Finn and Jake are walking through the woods looking for a cool cave to check out when Jake picks up on Finn's depression. He's just gone through a breakup and he's having a really hard time sorting himself out. It's all fine. I've just been feeling kind of gray is all. Like my inside voice has been kind of quiet lately. Not a lot of instructions forthcoming, you know? Yeah, well, sounds like you said... So Jake is trying to cheer Finn up when they discover that their path is blocked by a train going by. I'll snap you out of the... Whoa, what? What's this train all about? <laughs> so they decide to wait until it passes, but it never passes. And so they take a nap and they wake up and it's still going. So Jake elongates his body, he gets a bird's eye view, and that's when he sees that the train is actually... A never-ending loop. All the cars are connected. No beginning, no end, and it's going around a giant circular track forever. So they jump on board. But there are little monsters in each car, and when they defeat them, those monsters drop loot. Weapons and armor and magical items. Whoa. Look at all the loot that guy dropped while you whipped his butt. Dang, look at that sword. Whoa, feels kind of right. And so Finn is hooked, and he keeps going from car to car, getting better stuff, killing slightly more difficult enemies, getting better stuff, killing slightly more difficult enemies, until he's made it all the way back around. Whoa. 
dude, this is the ant car. We already did the ant car. We did all the ants. Same car. But those are blue ants. These are red ants. Finn, I think we And that is when Jake starts to worry because Finn tells him that as long as he's on the train, he can't feel sadness. No way. All this feels good. Like my inside voice is saying, hey, keep it up. This is good stuff. Like when you made those biscuits way back, and I kept eating them until they were all gone. Like that. Finn, I made those biscuits with so much butter. You were just responding to the butter. This whole place is butter. Yeah. Now, eventually, Finn gets a piece of loot that lets him see the future, and he sees himself as an old man, and he's still on the train, and he's still leveling up. He's still looking for loot. And that's when he sees his friend Jake, old, still waiting for him to get enough. And that's when he decides to leave. And I'm telling you about this episode because it changed my mind. And that change of mind led me to change my behavior. I was deep into a video game called Destiny when I saw this episode. And I was playing it obsessively and I was stuck in a loop of loot and repetition. But I couldn't see that until I saw Jake the dog and Finn the human stuck in a loop in a train, going nowhere, forever. So I stopped playing that game, and I'll never play a game like that again. I love video games. I think they're an unalloyed good in this world, but some of them aren't. Not for me. No World of Warcraft, no Hearthstone, no League of Legends, and no Destiny. And thanks to that fictional, fantastical narrative, thanks to Adventure Time, I will never get back on that train. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we're exploring the power of narrative transport to persuade, to persuade us to change our minds and our behavior, to see the world differently, to put things into context, to create arguments we can't argue against, that we cannot counter argue and shoot down because the story is so compelling and seems so real, even when it is fantastical like Adventure Time, the truth is being conveyed by that narrative can really change the way that we live our lives. And our guest in this episode, Melanie Green, studies this one particular aspect of human psychology, the power of fictional narratives to change people's opinions, beliefs, attitudes, values, to foster or support social change. And that's happened ever since there have been fictional stories. If you want to change people's minds, one of the best ways is to create a very compelling narrative. And thanks to psychology, we now know the elements that you should include in that narrative if you want to create the most powerful, persuasive message possible. And after this break, Melanie Green will tell us exactly what psychology has figured out so far.
most diets fail because they make you change too many foods all at once. That's not how we work. That's not how brains make sense of things. That's not how you alter your habits. If you want to fix the way you eat, you should do the opposite. You should make one change and you should do it slowly so that it sticks. There is now an app that is designed to do this very specific thing. I've been using it for a couple weeks now. I can tell you straight up, it is really, really cool. It's called OneFix. The OneFix app is set up so that a nutritionist analyzes your meals and then they find one thing that's causing your body to store extra fat and they give you a fix. And then you do that one fix every day for one month. And if you're doing that one fix, it's easy. It becomes part of who you are. It becomes part of your normal habits. And then you begin the next fix. Now, if diabetes or heart disease runs in your family, an extra 30 or more pounds can be enough to make you worried. And diets are psychologically a pretty terrible way to lose weight. If you want to make it permanent, based on the research, you do one fix at a time. And that's what this app does. Let me tell you how it works. Uh, you just simply take a picture of your food. That's it. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, you take a picture of it, and then you just go about your day. At some point, a nutritionist comes in, usually after about three or four minutes, and they analyze what you've eaten. And then over time, they do their thing in the background, and you get a message here and there saying, what about this? What about that? And then at the perfect time, they say, here is your one fix. You know what they told me to do? Stop drinking orange juice in the morning and stop eating hash browns. They said your one fix is breakfast. And so I've taken orange juice and hash browns out and we're going from there. It's a really crazy, amazing service because you get a personal nutritionist who will talk to you any time of day and who watches what you eat so that you can watch what you eat. It's great. So go to getonefix.com. Use the code Y-A-N-S-S to get $50 off of your first month. That's getonefix.com. And the code is Y-A-N-S-S. You get $50 off your first month. Once you download the app, a nutritionist will help you get started. We'll take you through the whole thing. A real living human being is going to fix the way you eat food. Get one fix today. That's getonefix.com. And the code is Y-A-N-S-S. To be our best, we need to keep ourselves challenged and continue learning as much as possible. And one way to do that, the best way, is the Great Courses Plus. You get unlimited access to gain fascinating insights from leading professors and experts about anything that interests you. There's more than 10,000 lectures that you can watch at any time on topics like logic, secrets of mental math, ancient history, even photography. You can watch them anytime. You can listen to them instead if that's what you want to do. And you can do all that through the Great Courses Plus app. One of the many courses that I recommend is boosting your emotional intelligence. We, we leave emotional intelligence behind for some reason. We're always concerned with IQ, but people with high IQs are not always the most successful. In fact, there's not a lot of correlation there when it comes to the kind of success that requires you to not be an asshole. There's people who are technology wizards who've never been promoted because they're not team players, or tenured professors who don't know why their children seem to be avoiding them, award-winning designers whose tempers cause them to lose clients and lead to financial ruin. There are all kinds of exceptionally bright individuals with recognized talent in their fields, and yet they fail to reach their own potential because 
They need some emotional intelligence, y'all. Emotional intelligence. This this course is 24 lectures. They're about 30 minutes long each. It starts with what is emotional intelligence, measuring it, exploring emotions, embodied emotions. Then it goes through everything from managing yours to others to developing it, leadership, workplace, culture, stress, management, behavioral change, chronic disease. This is something you need to put in your brain. Get emotionally intelligent. Here's what you need to do. Go to The Great Courses Plus. I know you're going to love this. I love it. You're going to love The Great Courses Plus too. You go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart and you get a free month. To get that free month, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Get boosting your emotional intelligence or anything else you can get in one month. This one is specifically great because you get this UC San Francisco professor helping you understand and how to control your emotions, which ones will help you improve your your personal relationships and your interactions at work and decision-making. To get this and all the rest, you have to go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Hey. Yeah, I've been trying to reach you. What? No, I'm not making this up. You gave me this disease. Uh, you know what? Yeah, don't bother calling me again. We're through. This is a short film produced by the University of Southern California called The Tamale Lesson. And in it, a group of women who range in ages from very young, a young teen, all the way up to a grandmother, are in a kitchen going back and forth in a very sort of TV show kind of way, talking about, while making tamales, cervical cancer. You and your boyfriend, you wouldn't understand. Why not? Because you're a prude. You always think you're so perfect and so good, and you will probably judge me. This video was created by Sheila Murphy. She's a professor at the University of Southern California who studies health communication. She had a hunch that this kind of approach would be better than a PSA or a pamphlet. And the idea was to create something that would encourage women to see their doctors and to get pap smears and to have these conversations and to take the steps necessary to prevent cervical cancer. And... um she has really nice evidence that showed that 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 video, that story video, kind of putting it this in the context of, in this case, it was a family and women talking and discussing these issues and, and those sorts of things, um, that that was more effective at actually changing behavior. So getting women, women to um, take this step to protect their health. That is psychologist Melanie Green. Uh, so my name is Melanie Green, and I'm an associate professor in the communication department at the University of Buffalo. For years now, Green has been studying the power of fictional narratives to persuade us to change our minds. So I study how people change their minds through stories. So how people get immersed in stories and how that can lead them to change how they think about the world. Green says that the Tamale lesson takes what we've learned in psychology about the power of storytelling and it uses that information to create something from the ground up to on purpose persuade people. Um, yeah, it's a fun, a fun story with, with sisters and moms and kind of just this fun family discussion. Okay, what's HP? Hmm? Huntington Park. 
know is the human papilloma virus. Hey, yuck. How did you get that? How do you think, stupid? From sex. It can cause cervical cancer. You have cancer? No, no. I have a virus that can cause cervical cancer. Um, But basically, it's the story of these two sisters, and they're getting ready for this party, and one of the sisters is sort of a more reserved, you know, good girl character, so to speak. And the other one's a little more wild and promiscuous. And uh, one of the sisters comes in and this, these conversations all take place when they're sort of in the kitchen preparing this food for the family celebration. And, oh, you need to get tested for HPV or, and you need to, um, you know, have this screening. And then the mother or the grandmother comes in and says, oh, what's, what's all this conversation about? And it's like, oh, well, older women need this test too. And here's, here's how it is. And this is what the doctor said. And, and so it's sort of, there's, there's laughing and there's, there's back and forth jokes. And uh, there's a demonstration with a chicken that I, (laughs) the viewers will have to see for themselves, (laughs) but it's sort of this very engaging, you know, you, you get to like these characters, but at the same time, it conveys all this health information. Um, in such a way that it even motivated people to take action in their own lives. Petra Martinez? Here, I'm right here. You want me to wait? Why don't you go get us something to eat, Mamita? Hmm? Tamales? <laughs> no. <laughs> As Green explains, fictional narratives have affected the way we see the world and changed the course of history, changed our minds, influenced or supported social movements, going all the way back to the epic poems. But in our recent history, we can think of many examples, The Catcher in the Rye, The Kill a Mockingbird, Beloved, The Color Purple, 1984, Fahrenheit 451. In more recent times, with same-sex marriage and attitudes toward LGBT people, we've had Brokeback Mountain and Will and Grace, and we've had shows just recently like Transparent. All of these things have been and are being studied by psychologists. And what Green does is study something very particular— Something that she says leads to persuasion more so than any other element of a fictional narrative. And that is something called transport. Narrative transport. So transportation into a narrative world is that full immersion that we have when we're experiencing a really good story. So it's when we're racing to the end of a great mystery novel or we're sitting in the theater watching that awesome film Um, Or even just listening to a spellbinding story that your friend is telling you about some amazing experience that they had. It's this idea that our minds, our thoughts, our emotions are fully engaged with the content of the story. And so more technically, we talk about it as having a cognitive component. So your attention is there an emotional or affective content where your or um, component where your feelings are reacting to the events in the story. And then there's also mental imagery. So either something that's provided on the screen or a mental image that you're forming yourself as you're 
reading or listening to a story. If you want to encase a persuasive message within a narrative, transportation theory says that you really have to have this transport take place. The people watching your film, your movie, your TV show, your short film, your PSA, they really, really need to forget who they are, forget that they're a person, forget everything, and become completely immersed in what they're watching, which is why almost all the PSAs you've seen throughout the years, all those after-school specials, don't really do much for us because they don't invest the time and effort and money and acting prowess and storytelling prowess to truly transport us into their worlds. And transport, says Green, is the most important thing if you want to persuade people with a piece of fiction. And her research, along with colleagues, has identified four main reasons why that is true. So um, one way that the transportation works is that it puts us in a state of mind that, that in a sense is more receptive generally. And we talk about this in the more technical language as reducing counter-arguing. And so if you think about it, a lot of times when we encounter an advertisement or an editorial or just somebody who wants to argue with us about something, right, it puts us in maybe a more skeptical or defensive or resistant kind of mindset. Or at the very least, we maybe just have our guard up a little bit. We're like, "Mm, I better evaluate this. I better think about this critically. But... When we're encountering a story, most often we don't have those same guards up because, hey, this is entertainment. This is something that happened to someone else. You know, we're just going with it. Um, And so in cases where people might otherwise sort of resist persuasion, a narrative, particularly a transporting narrative, might be a way of, of getting that message to people in a way that they're more willing to hear it and and less willing to argue against it. You know, one because once we're in the mo- in the world of a story, it's fun, it's enjoyable. We want to see what happens next and to sort of bounce ourselves out of that and start kind of mentally arguing with what's going on would disrupt that experience and so people are less likely to do it. So that's the first factor. If you have people departing from normal reality into an imagined world of a story, it really reduces counter-arguing. And the second thing it does is it allows them to truly identify with the characters, even the bad guys. Um, A second way that they work is that they can connect us with characters. So a lot of times part of the power of a story is that there's someone in that story that we either really like and identify with, um, or, you know, presents a a role model that we admire, but we have some kind of positive connection um, with that character. And so it seems in a sense that the experiences of that character start to feel like something that happened to us or that happened to a friend of ours. And so that's more likely to influence how, how we think about things. I'm, 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 I'm always astonished at how you can Often it doesn't have to be the protagonist or the quote-unquote good guy. You can identify with any character in a story if it's well told and and learn something about yourself or, or challenge your beliefs and attitudes. You know, I, I of course, one of the examples I've talked to you about before was, you know, Walter White. You know, you can, you know, mm-hmm. or, or there was another show called The Shield before that where this the, clearly you're rooting for the bad guy the entire time. And, um, <laughs> and uh but even in movies where there is clearly a villain, sometimes you can empathize and understand 
Uh, and, you know, shows like Game of Thrones where everything is gray and no one really is the good guy until, you know, the later seasons, you can, I, I it's, it's, it's a good characters can just do some amazing things to you. If you, when you're, when you are transported into those worlds. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And an example that comes to mind for me too, is something like Downton Abbey where it's like, my life is nothing like any of these people, (laughs) (laughs) but yet, you know, you still can connect in different ways with, with these characters and sort of their struggles or, you know, it's not always necessarily liking. Sometimes you like laugh at a character or root against a character. Those kind of things happen too, but that's still part of being engaged with it. The third factor Green says is emotional involvement. Stories can create really this, this emotional connection. Um, stories are, you know, somebody trying to do something, something, something getting in the way. And so inherently they tend to usually at least have a lot of emotion to it. And so that emotion kind of resonates with us in ways that can change how we think about, about the world. Um, you know, maybe making us more sympathetic toward a group of people or even like making us angry about an issue, um, and depending on the particular emotion, that emotion can can play into different sort of actions or attitudes that people have. And the fourth factor is something that she calls the perception of realism. Narratives have a certain type of realism to them in that they're concrete, they're vivid, and so in a certain way there, they can be encoded by our minds in the same way that our real experiences are. And, you know, obviously it's not exactly the same, but we think about it as maybe being the next best thing that, you know, you still have this imagery, you still have this emotion. It kind of feels like something that, that happened. Now, okay. So this is something that really, that I've thought about a good bit since reading your paper, the, um, because like, uh, you know, there are hyper-realistic shows, like, uh, you know, there are hyper-realistic movies, um, that really do attempt to have this verite to them where you, you're, you're mm-hmm. just, you actually are there. It's not like a Quentin Tarantino movie where you know you're in this like heightened <laughs> universe. Stylized, right? Right, right. And, and then there's like, uh, I think about this, the cartoon Adventure Time, um, mm-hmm. which does not try to be real in any way. And uh, I remember this episode, Just so you don't have to hear this twice, right here in the interview, I tell Melanie Green all about the Adventure Time experience that I had. And then I ask her, what does she think of that, considering that one of the elements of transportation is this feeling of realism? And I wondered what she thought, considering that this cartoon is very much not realistic. Nice. Um, And I remember, like, this is a cartoon. It's incredibly unrealistic. This is a, a fairy tale. Yet, it completely changed my mind about that aspect of life. And and it it was this perfect cautionary tale as cautionary as anything in breaking bad. Um, and so I think about those perceptions of realism. Like I, my perception of that was like, this is the truth. And I just, you know, they, 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 they put it in a cupcake and I ate it. (laughs) (laughs) I like that turn of phrase. (laughs) No, but that, I mean, that's a wonderful example. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because the realism in this sense is really more of a psychological realism than a literal realism. Um, because yeah, it doesn't have to be, you know, a setting that looks like the streets that we're walking on or whatever. Things can be fictionalized. It can be, 
crazy animation styles. But again, it's sort of that that realism of, in a sense, is this ringing true to the human experience? Are people acting in a way that real people would act? Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's interesting. We did a study, this was a number of years ago, and it never ended up getting published, but um, we did a study where we were kind of trying to look at at what kinds of realism would, would bounce people out of stories. And so we had this kind of realistic one set on a college campus, and then we had a version of it that was set out in space. And, um, and then we had one that just had a bunch of mis- Oh, sure, no problem. <laughs> then we had one that just had a bunch of mistakes in it to try to get people to think, oh, this author doesn't know what they're talking about. And surprisingly, we actually found that these sort of realism measures were higher for the the story that was set in space because it was basically like people were like once they've accepted that narrative frame like okay this is the world that we're in we're in a world in the future or we're in a science fiction world or like we're in the adventure time world whatever it is people kind of they give you that they're like okay we're in this frame and then it's like they're judging the realism within that so like okay given that this is the situation are these characters still acting in plausible ways? Does this still make sense to me psychologically? hasn't only studied the power of narrative transport in fiction. One of her more recent studies looked into the power of a well-told non-fiction narrative to change minds. In this case, it was the book The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. It's a well-written book. It argues persuasively for a change in attitudes toward mass-produced foods, including produce and meat. And it also discusses subsidies and corporate interests, stuff like that. Green wondered if a compelling non-fiction book might also transport readers into its world? And if so, how would that impact their thinking? Um, In this study, what we were interested in doing was extending the narrative research in a couple of ways, because there's a lot of research that suggests that narratives and transporting narratives can, can change people's attitudes and beliefs. But a lot of that previously, not all, but a lot, had been sort of, okay, we give people a short story and then we ask them some questions right afterwards. And so we're showing that it changes people's attitudes right away. But what a lot of times what we really want to know is, okay, well, what about a week from now? What about six months from now? You know, is this a change that's going to be enduring? And so that was the first thing the study allowed us to do. The second thing that we were interested in is, well, what if, what if this is something longer, you know, a whole book as opposed to just a a 10 page short story. And so what we did to try to answer those questions is we took advantage of a freshman reading project that they have at Penn, where everybody in the incoming class is supposed to read the same book. And this particular year, the book was The Omnivore's Dilemma, which has a lot of um, great messages about food and the food supply, um, you know, government subsidies, issues like that. And so what we were able to do was we were able to get um, attitudes that we thought would be related to the book and assess them early on in students' freshman year and then compare them to another class of students, sophomores, who hadn't read that particular book, or at least most of them presumably hadn't. And then we also 
went back a year later and looked at the people who had read that book as freshmen, who were now sophomores, to see what happened over the course of that year. And Green found that, yeah, the book seemed to do its job. It seemed to work. Attitudes measured before and after reading the book showed a significant change in the direction of the book's arguments. So that was cool. It was a great book. It was changing people's attitudes. And the interesting thing was that when we came back a year later, um, a lot of the attitude change had faded away. And this is typical, right? We're living in a, a time when we're getting tons of information every day. You know, our brains don't hang on to every bit of it. We forget. We have other influences. But the cool thing was that there were a couple of those attitudes that did actually show enduring change, that even after a year had passed, people who had read that book were showing attitudes more consistent with the book than people who hadn't. So it was kind of exciting that it showed the potential for these powerful uh, kinds of stories to have change that really endures over the long term. Yeah, I think about how... um in this case, it's one book, but you know, in the real, real world, you're going to have multiple, you know, you, you, when something is in the zeitgeist and there are, like we were talking about Will and Grace and um, Brokeback Mountain and Boys Don't Cry and the real world having the first uh, LGBT character or character person, you know, um, like it's, you're being, you're, these are all narratives and they're all hitting you from different directions. And it's not, you aren't dividing that into fake world, real world. That is part of your life. And it's all, it's, you know, it's being, not only is it changing you, but if it's also changing your cohort, then the non-fictional world is being shifted at the same time. And so, you know, in your study, I think about the omnivores dilemma, all their friends and family didn't read it. So that's different than if it was something that, uh, like Brokeback Mountain, where everybody, there's a large cohort of people around you who are also experiencing it and talking to you about it. So... Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I love this stuff so much. Okay, so uh, <laughs> let me ask you. Let me ask you two last questions. Uh, sure. And this is. I just think this is such a great. This is gonna be a really fun episode. And I really uh, thanks for giving me your time. Um, what is? What's your favorite movie? Um, the Princess Bride is my favorite movie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're going back a ways for that one. <laughs> no, perfect. I own. I own that in, in, in every in every format that it's ever been. I have that. So awesome. <laughs> um, perfect. Uh, and so what? And, and uh, so very well, strong uh, attitudes about rodents of unusual size. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, that's good. Uh, um, what is your uh, and what's your favorite book? Oh, it's so hard to pick just one because I'm such a reader. Um, well, let's change. Let you, me change it to what is. What's a book that you feel has had a tremendous impact on your life that was fiction? Ooh, gosh, that's an even harder one. <laughs> um, you know, I think I'll go back to the favorite book one and, and really at the risk of being, um, I don't know, going along with the crowd, really Harry Potter right now is the one that stands out to me. Yeah. What, 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 why? Well, I think, um, Partially because of the, the time that I first read it. I read it a lot when I was working on my dissertation. So I kind of associate it with, with that period of my life. But also I think it just, I mean, it has a lot of lessons, a lot of characters that I think really resonate and kind of speak to important issues about, you know, standing up for yourself, you know, mm -hmm. fighting for what's right, getting mm -hmm. through difficult times. I mean, there's just, I think there's, 
I mean, on the one hand, it's fun, right? It's it's really neat to, to have all the magic and the things like that. But I think there's also a lot of um, deeper issues that it touches on that um, I think are part of why it's resonated with so many people, you yeah. know, over so many years. Okay, and my very last question is, um, if you could be permanently transported into a fictional universe, a fictional world, which one would you want to live in? Ooh, which one would I want to live in? That's a that's a good question. Well, you know, now that it's at the top of my mind, I'm thinking the Harry Potter world, but only like after Voldemort's been uh, defeated and everything's all good again. <laughs> so we'll just, you know, fly around and Professor Green's future research will be into how to use narratives to improve the climate for women and minorities in science and technology fields where they are underrepresented. You can follow Melanie Green on Twitter. She is at NARPROF, N-A-R-R-P-R-O-F, and there's a link there to her website. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. You can find more great podcasts just like this one at boingboingpodcast.com. You can find all the previous episodes at youarenotsosmart.com, where you can also find cookie recipes, show notes, and links to everything that we talked about in every single episode, including this one. You can also find the previous episodes on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iTunes. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And if you want to follow You Are Not So Smart, you can do so on Twitter. It's at NotSmartBlog. You can do so on Facebook. It's just You Are Not So Smart. And you can also do it at Patreon, where if you pitch in just $1, you can get shows ad free on twitter i am at david mccraney oh we've got some great shows coming up here in the future i'm doing a big three-part series on fake news already have 10 interviews recorded for that it's going to be a really cool series covering everything about it psychologically from top to bottom and another maybe one maybe two-part series about the differences between people on the left and right politically when it comes to science denial all that's coming up very soon, including episodes with Julia Shaw about her new book about evil and her book previously about memory, a episode about awkwardness, an episode about uh, science literacy and politics. Oh, so much stuff. See you there.